Father, anoint this time of preaching. All the preparation in the world is mere folly unless your spirit uses these words as the instrument of your sovereign work. And so, Spirit of God, use this message to build your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this message is a continuation of our three-part introduction to the book of Leviticus that we started a, a number of weeks ago. And uh, in our first message, we explained that the first five books of the Bible, or what we refer to as the Pentateuch, were written as a single literary unit. That is to say, none of the five books were ever meant to stand on their own. And because they function as a single literary unit, they function as a single theological unit. Now we explained that the key theological theme of the Pentateuch is God making a way for humanity to once again dwell with God in the very midst of his holy presence. We also explained that this theme reaches its climax in the book of Leviticus in such a way that the book of Leviticus is the very heart the very heart of the Pentateuch's theological message. In last week's message, we started looking at the narrative movement of the Pentateuch storyline from Genesis through Exodus in order to see how these books prepare us for the theology of Leviticus. We discovered that Genesis is ultimately a story of humanity's exile from God's presence. We looked closely at how the narrative moves from the life-giving presence of God in the garden to the death and burial of Joseph in Egypt. That is, from the source of life on God's mountain to Sheol and the grave. Now today, we'll look closely at the narrative movement of the book of Exodus, seeing how God begins to reverse humanity's exile from his presence as well as how God sovereignly discloses the saving nature of his actions among the ancient Hebrews and the nations at large. Now, the main points of today's message echo the three-part structure of the book of Exodus. However, before summarizing this structure, it's going to be helpful to recover an important point from last week's message and then expand a bit on that point. So remember, we talked briefly about how the cultures of the ancient Near East understood the physical world around them. That is, their perception of how the cosmos was structured and thus how it worked. We talked about their notion of the earth, uh, the heavens, and the underworld, their comprehension of death. But we also talked about, oops, but we also talked about how the Hebrews internalized the world around them. Now, as a people of the ancient Near East themselves, the starting point of their worldview held some things in common with the general ancient Near East view, but because they were also the recipients of Yahweh's communication and so often the object of Yahweh's actions in history, ancient Israel's grasp of this fallen world and life within it was profoundly shaped by their growing understanding of Yahweh 
and his saving purposes. In other words, their worldview was ultimately a theological expression of what God is doing in history. So let me briefly review. The ancient Hebrews thought of God's engagement with humanity in terms of a divine mountain on whose summit was the supreme glory of God's presence, the place where heaven met earth. And therefore, atop the summit of God's mountain was the Holy of Holies, the place of God's most intimate dwelling with man. And they saw all of creation, the heavens and the earth, as God's possession, God's holy habitation. And in this sense, they saw the universe as a large temple. And therefore, what would later become the physical temple or tabernacle, they saw as a representative of the universe, the temple that God built, if you will. And along similar lines, the ancient Hebrews understood the Garden of Eden to be the original Holy of Holies that sat atop the primeval mountain of God, where God dwelt with humanity prior to Adam's sin and humanity's subsequent exile from the mountain. Dwelling with God wasn't seen as some sort of utopian existence, but rather God's presence was the supreme source of life itself. In fact, so much so that the concept of God's holiness and the concept of life itself and all the vitality of life was actually seen as one and the same thing. Now, on the opposite sides of things, underneath the earth lie Sheol, the place of the dead. And theologically, Sheol and death were more than merely the absence of physical breath and heartbeat, often described in terms of dark waters or chaos or even uncreation, Sheol and death corresponded to the place of everlasting separation from Yahweh's life-giving presence. Now, all of this is why movement away from God is understood in the Old Testament scriptures as a descent from the mountain of God and thus movement away from life towards death, chaos or uncreation. Similarly, movement toward God is understood as an ascent, an ascent from Sheol or death to life and holiness in the presence of God's dwelling on his holy mountain. Now, the reason I brought us back to this imagery is because it will be important to our understanding of Exodus. However, before we jump into Exodus, I want to make one important clarification. And that is this worldview or this mental model of how the ancient Hebrews expressed Yahweh's engagement with Israel, it should not be understood as something the ancient Hebrews invented. This isn't a product of their creativity or their innovation like the worldviews of other ancient Near East cultures might have been. But rather, it's something that Yahweh himself communicated to Israel. Now let me explain how that works. You see, because God is so utterly unlike his creation, the question arises of how communication is even possible between an infinite, transcendent God and his finite creatures. 
Consider for the moment Isaiah 55, verse 8, where our Lord says, where, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You see, there's a principle we see throughout Scripture that theologians often refer to as something called divine accommodation. What's that? Well, that's just a big fancy term. And what it means is it's this idea or notion that God communicates with his people in ways that defer to our limited ability to understand. So more specifically, God often reveals truths about himself or his actions through analogy. That is, God uses ideas or paradigms we already understand in order to communicate something new. So, for example, God often describes himself as as a warrior, as a shepherd, a king, a father, a husband. Because we already understand these concepts, we learn something about who God is and what he is like when he uses these terms to describe himself or his actions. So in a similar way, God used some of the ideas and concepts rooted in the worldview of the ancient Near East, adjusted them a bit so that he could accurately convey his intended message and then communicated to ancient Israel by way of these new but still somewhat familiar ideas. And this is how ancient Israel came to have an accurate understanding of who God is, who they were in light of who God is and what God was doing in response to this. The Old Testament's expression of humanity's fall in terms of exile and descent from God's mountain and God's initiative and action to deliver humanity from Sheol, ascend his mountain, and again dwell in God's house, all of these exemplify the divine accommodation we've just described. Right? And though these paradigms sound awkward to our contemporary way of thinking, because these ideas and constructs are not the way we would likely describe something, right? even though they're awkward to our train of thought, they resonated quite plainly with the thoughts and thinking of the ancient peoples to whom God chose to first disclose himself and his purposes. Now, the reason I'm going through such effort to emphasize the details of Israel's worldview and the ideas and the concepts used to express this understanding is because so much of the Old Testament's theology is contained in this kind of language and the thinking behind it. Now let's connect everything we said so far back to the topic of Exodus. You see, the historical events that comprise the narrative flow of Exodus, as well as the theological significance of these events, follow the worldview pattern that we've been discussing. So let me show you how this works. The book of Exodus is arranged in a threefold structure that ultimately describes God's deliverance of his people through the waters of death and Sheol to the mountain of God so, they, they, so that they might dwell with God in the house of God. Now, while this pattern arguably describes the storyline of the entire Bible, the narrative movement of Exodus is a concentrated presentation of this pattern. So part one 
chronicles Israel's exodus out of Egypt and spans chapter 1 through most of chapter 15. And the events and the theology of this section correspond to God's deliverance of a new humanity through the waters of death and Sheol. Part 2 covers the next 10 chapters whose central emphasis is the Sinai Covenant. And it's not hard to see how this corresponds to the movement of God's people to God's holy mountain. And part three spans the remainder of the book, chapters 25 through 40, that deals with the construction of the tabernacle. The climax of these 16 chapters, if not the climax of the entire, uh, if not the high point of the Pentateuch thus far, is the glory of Yahweh filling the tabernacle at the end of the book. And all of this corresponds to the idea of God dwelling among his people and they with him in the midst of Yahweh's divine presence. And as we survey some of the details in each of these three sections, we'll see how the theology of Exodus emerges and how the events and theology of Exodus prepare us to more richly understand the theology of Leviticus. Let's begin with the first part of the book, Through the Waters. Israel's exodus out of Egyptian bondage, chronicled in the first 15 chapters, is communicating far more than the drama of the plagues and Israel's passage through the divided sea. But before I talk about this, I want to remind you of something I mentioned just briefly during the end of our last message. Now, most likely, due to their skill in mummification, Egypt was known throughout the ancient Near East as the land of the dead. And picking up on this association, as well as Egypt's watery boundaries, consisting of the Nile on one side and the sea on the other, the Old Testament often uses Egypt as a symbol of Sheol, the watery abode of death. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, Pharaoh is likened to a dragon dwelling amidst foul waters. And by the way, I didn't emphasize this when I talked about the ancient Near East worldview, but oftentimes Sheol was described as being guarded by a dragon. Or even in Hebrew thinking, Leviathan from the book of Job is often described as guarding or patrolling the waters of Sheol. And so now we come to someplace like Ezekiel 32 too, and we see Pharaoh likened to a dragon dwelling amidst foul waters. Again, building this association of Egypt to Sheol. We read in Ezekiel, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you are like the monster of the seas. And you burst forth in your rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled their rivers. And so it's against this backdrop of Israel's theological worldview and Egypt as a picture of Sheol that the entire movement of Exodus is understood most clearly. Israel was delivered from the depths of the sea, that is Egypt, and Pharaoh, the sea dragon embodying that kingdom, and transported to God's holy habitation upon God's holy mountain. Now, the movement from the waters to the mountain is a movement from death to life, from exile 
to the divine presence, reversing the history of Genesis. And Israel, as God's firstborn son, like Adam and Noah before them, find themselves brought back to the gate of Eden, the tabernacle. And this pattern of deliverance corresponds precisely to Moses' victory psalm in Exodus 15 that we read at the beginning of our service. In fact, you might want to flip back to that as I just summarize this very briefly. Because chapter 15 of Exodus may be considered to be really the theology of Exodus in a poetic nutshell. Okay, so you may want to scan that as I, as I briefly work through this. So the first 10 verses celebrate Yahweh's victory through the sea, which culminates in verse 11 with the declaration of Yahweh's supremacy and Yahweh's incomparability. And then the second half of the psalm proclaims God's love for Israel and promises that he will lead his people in safety past the nations to his abode where he will plant Israel on his holy mountain to a sanctuary Yahweh has fashioned with his hands. And finally, the psalm ends with the declaration of Yahweh's eternal reign. And so spanning the narrative arc of the first 15 chapters of Exodus, Israel's groaning under bondage and Pharaoh's ever-hardening heart, these combine to form a, what you might think of as a theological drama that reveals important facts about the nature of re-entering the divine presence. And what's that fact? What's, that, what's a key fact? Well, we learn this. Humanity must be delivered from bondage that is, from death itself, before humanity can be brought back into life with God. Let me repeat that. Humanity must be delivered from bondage, from death itself, before humanity can be brought back into life with God. This is something we see in the narrative movement of Exodus. Now, in order to get a better grasp of that truth, I want to draw your attention to the event that lies at the very heart of the Exodus narrative. And that's the Passover sacrifice chronicled in Exodus 12. Now, throughout the first nine plagues, I want you to to notice something. Throughout the first nine plagues, God protected Israel from the tragic circumstances thrust upon Egypt. Did he not? God made a distinction between Israel and Egypt. God quarantined or protected Israel from the effects of the first nine plagues. But interestingly, the tenth and final plague is different. The death of every household's firstborn son was a divine action that would not differentiate between the households of Egypt and the households of Israel. Israel had to be delivered from this final sign or else their own firstborn sons would also die. And this deliverance from Yahweh's sentence of death was to be remembered forever through Israel's annual Passover feast that was to commemorate the whole Exodus deliverance. Now we noted a moment ago that the narrative events of Exodus reveal that humanity must be delivered from the bondage of death before humanity can be brought back into life with God. And through the event of the Passover meal, 
we learn that this deliverance involves three things. It involves, first, a ransoming of one life for another. Secondly, it involves a cleansing or a purification. And lastly, it involves a consecration. Let's talk about these separately. First, this idea of of a ransom, of one life for another. If not for the slaying of the Passover lamb and using the lamb's blood to mark the doorways of the Israelite households, it's clear from the text that the firstborn sons of Israel would also have died. We read in Exodus 12, the second half of verse 13. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When I see the blood, if not for the blood, the firstborn of that Israelite home would also have died. And so we see that the sacrifice of the lamb involved the idea of substitutionary atonement. The animal's death being considered in the place of each firstborn son of Israel. And then we have this idea of cleansing or purification. The sprinkling or smearing of blood, especially its association with the herb hyssop, occurs elsewhere in the Pentateuch as an act of ceremonial purification or cleansing. We see this in Leviticus 14 and Numbers 19, for example. Listen to Moses' instruction to the people in Exodus 12. In verse 22, he says, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And so beyond the mere utility of simply marking the Israelites' households, it's beyond question that there's also a theology of purification or a theology of cleansing being illustrated in the Passover event. The imagery of the psalmist helps us see this most clearly. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 51. He says, Purge me with hyssop. Why? What's the outcome of that? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So not only do we see this idea of ransom, or substitutionary atonement, we see the notion of purification and cleansing, being made clean from our defilement. And then there's this third idea of consecration. You see, the eating of the lamb was an essential part of the Passover ritual, and it was marked by a series of detailed instructions on how the Passover lamb was to be consumed, and most importantly, how the uneaten parts were to be disposed. One particular requirement is noteworthy. And we see this in Exodus 12.10 where Moses writes, And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. What's so particular about that? Well, this stipulation is precisely the very same stipulation applied to meat and grain made holy by virtue of its sacrificial status later on in Leviticus, particularly Leviticus 6 and Leviticus 22. And what's noteworthy is that in in regard to the sacrificial meat or the sacrificial grain is that only the priests and their households could eat such meat and grain. And then whoever ate of that sacrificial portion were themselves made holy. 
And so what we see here is that the entire goal of the Passover ceremony and the deliverance it embodies, the deliverance it embodies is ultimately Israel's consecration. That is being set apart as holy to Yahweh. All three of these characteristics considered together, Israel's ransoming, their purification and consecration, they are uncannily similar to the consecration of Aaron and his sons later on in Exodus 29 and, and Leviticus 8, the consecration of Aaron and his sons as priests that we'll see later on in, in, in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8 because these two involve sacrifice, blood smearing, and the eating of holy meat. And so what all of this tells us is that Yahweh is transforming Israel into a kingdom of priests. He's transforming them into a holy nation. What we see illustrated here is what is explicitly stated later in the book in Exodus 19.6. Okay, and so as the narrative moves forward, we'll discuss what the essential role of the priest is, uh, particularly that is to be a mediator between God and those God seeks to bring back into his divine presence. But just as Moses was the mediator between God and Israel, God chose Israel to be the mediator between himself and the nations. So connect this back to the observations we made a few weeks ago about what was going on in Genesis. In the shadow of Babel's tower builders, Israel's consecration as Yahweh's priest among the nations reveals the heart of God's plan to return all of humanity from exile to make a way for every tribe, people, language, and nation to once again dwell in the presence of God, fulfilling the purpose for which you and I were created to begin with. Well, moving on to the middle ten chapters of Exodus, let's look briefly at the significance of Israel's Mount Sinai experience. Now, Mount Sinai, as the mountain of God, dominates the Pentateuch narrative. Okay, Israel arrives at the base of Sinai uh, in Exodus 19. And they remain at Sinai for the rest of Exodus. And in fact, throughout the entire book of Leviticus, remember the point we made last week, is there's actually no geographical movement in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, the narrative and movement of Israel pauses as we listen to the speeches of God from the tabernacle. Right, and so they stay there during the entire book of Leviticus. And then finally, through the first third of Numbers, they remain at Sinai. And it is not until Numbers 10 that they depart from Sinai and continue on with their wilderness travels. So put simply, Sinai is where Israel was profoundly and permanently defined as Yahweh's people. It is where Yahweh's glory was literally manifested among the people and God established his covenant with the nation. It would be hard to overstate Sinai's central role in the history of ancient Israel. If the nature of Israel could be summarized in one word, it would be the word holiness. Mount Sinai was utterly holy because in a very real and literal sense, the thunderous and fiery presence of God, His unapproachable glory descended upon the summit. We read some of this last week 
in our outdoor service, but let me recover some of this again in Exodus 19, beginning in verse 16 and, and 18. We read, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. The gravity of God's holiness is emphasized by the partitioning of the mountain into three different zones of approach. Okay, three different zones of approach. The first is the base where the people were to assemble. And the second was sort of halfway up the mountain or the midsection where Aaron and his sons were to accompany Moses. And then finally there's the summit where only Moses himself was to ascend. God mandated strict observance of these boundaries lest God's holiness break out against the people or against Aaron and his sons. Once again, the question arises of the gate liturgy that we've discussed in our first two introductory messages. Who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh? Or in our particular case, Isaiah's version of the gate liturgy is no less fitting in Isaiah 33. Who among us can dwell with consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Well, the answer in no uncertain terms is Moses and no one else. Moses alone may ascend the mountain of God. Back to Exodus. Fast forward to chapter 24 verses 1 and 2. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. The theological heart of Israel's encounter with God at his holy mountain, flows directly from the reality of Israel's holiness. Humanity's way back into the divine presence requires a mediator. Because of God's holiness and our defilement, humanity's way back into the divine presence requires a mediator. It requires mediation. As God's chosen mediator between himself and the nation of Israel, Moses is able to ascend, whereas Aaron and the people may not, lest God's holiness consume them. Moses is also able to descend from the mountain, whereas God may not, for the very same reason, lest God's holiness consume the people. In this way, the mountain becomes a symbol for how Israel was to approach God in worship. God's mediator ascends in order to represent the people to God. And God's mediator descends in order to represent God to the people. Do, do you grasp what's going on here? You see, God's not just telling Moses, don't let them come near me and if you don't listen to me, I'll kill them. There is a profound gravity here. 
God's holiness is a lethal threat to the defiled sinner. How is God to return into his presence the people with whom he desires to dwell without his holiness destroying this very people? This is a very real problem. We must not think of this tritely. God's, the fact that man is even exiled from God's presence is itself an act of grace. Do you remember we talked about that last time? Lest God allow humanity to come before him and they be destroyed. So even the exile, this progressive exile of humanity away from the divine presence in the end is an act of mercy as God then goes to work his plan and purpose to bring humanity back. God's holy presence is dangerous to those who are sinners. But there's another vital aspect of this mediation that we don't want to miss. Ironically, this additional aspect isn't found in the middle of these ten chapters, but it's, it's in the center of the book's final section on the tabernacle. Moses' role as mediator comes to its fullest expression in Exodus 32 and 33, immediately after the golden calf incident, just after all the instructions for building the tabernacle have been communicated, but before the chapters that actually chronicle the construction of the tabernacle. In Exodus 32, Israel commits idolatry by fabricating a golden calf and worshiping it. This is arguably the highest point of tension in the narrative of Exodus. And some commentators have even noted that in this incident, humanity has been plunged into the greatest crisis in divine human relationships since the flood. This is almost certainly true since many of the key Hebrew terms used to describe Israel's sin in this idolatry and God's response to it are the very same terms used in the flood narrative. In fact, God's response to Israel in this God responds to Israel in the very same way he responded to the people of Noah's day. Do you remember in the flood narrative, God destroyed the current generation and started over with Noah. And at Sinai, God suggests to Moses that he will destroy Israel and start over with Moses. We read that in Exodus 32.10. Now, having ascended Sinai's summit to see if he can make atonement for the sin of the people, Moses intercedes before Yahweh. And what he says is very important and very illuminating as to what this role of mediator really entails. Because we read in Exodus 32, 32, we read this. Moses says, but now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. Now, this isn't as obvious in the English as it is in the original Hebrew. But what's going on here is that Moses is essentially offering himself in Israel's place. Moses is asking God that if he is unwilling to forgive Israel, then obliterate him instead as payment for their sin. And it's here where we see the fullest display of Moses' role as mediator. 
Mediation between God and humanity is something more than simply intercessory prayer or some sort of legal representation, but rather it's a profound act of sacrificial self-giving. Mediation between God and humanity is ultimately a profound act of sacrificial self-giving. Now, as the exchange between Yahweh and Moses continues, we learn even more of God's purpose to restore humanity from exile and make a way for humanity to once again dwell in God's presence. Partially accepting Moses' plea, God restrains his fury and he refrains from destroying Israel. But God tells Moses in Exodus 33, verses 1 through 3, that though they will go up into the land of Yahweh's promise, God himself will not. He will no longer go with them, but rather his angel will go before him. Few verses later in 33.15, Moses challenges that. Moses tells God that if his presence will not go with them, then, then don't even bother bringing them to the land. And what God is disclosing through the sifting of Moses' heart is that it is not the land itself that is the central promise or the central object of God's promise, but life in the land amidst the dwelling of God himself. All of God's covenant relation with Israel. The land is very important, but it's not center. What is center is God dwelling with his people in the land. What good is the land if absent of Yahweh's presence? This is Moses' point. What point, what good is the land if it will not become the new Eden in which Israel may enjoy life in fellowship with God? For Israel to occupy the land of Yahweh's promise without Yahweh actually dwelling with them is ultimately no different than Cain's city or Babel's city or Lot's cities. All of those examples of seeking satisfaction eastward of God's presence. See, that's what Moses is arguing. Apart from the self-giving mediation of Moses, there will be no tabernacle, no new cosmos filled with the glory of Yahweh. And so Moses wrestles with Yahweh for the restoration of his covenant and the restoration of Yahweh's pleasure to dwell among his people and travel with them, his presence with Israel in his land. And that's what the mediation of Moses restores. Finally, I'd like to turn your attention to the final 16 chapters of Exodus and draw out a few brief observations. Now, this final third of Exodus may initially strike us as as both tedious and repetitious, right? Or rep- repetitive. Chapters 25 through 31 are comprised of detailed instructions on how the tabernacle is to be constructed along with all of its contents. And then chapters 35 through 40 chronicle the actual construction of the tabernacle and all of its contents in nearly the same play-by-play sequence that we just read about in chapters 25 through 31. But... But to the original audience, the text's emphasis on the description of the tabernacle and its furnishings 
conveyed a blessed privilege of God's people who were delivered from exile and death and brought to Yahweh himself into the abundance of Yahweh's house, into the abundance of his promises. It might help us to orient our thinking to the mindset of the psalmist in Psalm 84, where they recapture or capture the same idea. In the first four verses we read, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Think divine presence. Think earthly tabernacle. Think ultimately God's temple, dwelling with his people in his land. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Folks, this isn't about going to church in some weekly rhythm week by week. This is the point of all of God's divine revelation, His heart's desire to dwell with His people in His temple, in His restored creation. Yahweh dwelling among His people. He will be their God and they will be His people. Returning to the rest and peace of Eden. Eden restored. That's the vision of the psalmist. To grasp more deeply the significance of the tabernacle as the place of God's literal earthly dwelling among Israel, we need to see how various aspects of the tabernacle perpetuate or continue certain aspects of God's presence on Sinai. That is, in the same way that Sinai manifested the earthly experience of God's mountain, the tabernacle was intended and understood to be a continuation of Israel's experience with Yahweh at Sinai. An architectural embodiment of God's mountain, if you will. In even simpler terms, the tabernacle was essentially seen as a portable mountain of God. Now to help you see this, let me point out a couple of significant parallels between Sinai and the tabernacle. We'll only hit a few. There's, there's many. Um, the, the writer of Scripture absolutely intends his readers to understand the parallels, and we won't have time to cover them exhaustively, but let me just sort of paint a picture for you. The most obvious similarity, of course, is, is the presence of Yahweh himself. His glory first descending upon the summit of Sinai, and then afterwards descending upon the tabernacle itself. Listen to the uh, listen to the similarities of these two statements. We read in Exodus 24, verse 15, And the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And then we fast forward to Exodus 40, upon the completion of the tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see the similarity? It's also worth noting, or it's also noteworthy to recognize that both the mountain and the tabernacle were divinely partitioned into three zones of approach. Three zones, not only three zones of approach, 
but zones of increasing holiness. I mentioned earlier that the mountain was divided into three zones. We talked about the base, the midsection, and the summit a few moments ago. But in the very same way, as one approached the tabernacle, one first encountered the outer court and the altar. This marked the limit of the people's penetration into Yahweh's presence. This corresponded to the base of the mountain, where the limit of where the people were to approach Yahweh at Sinai. Similarly, next was the holy place, or the tent of meeting itself, accessible to the priesthood. And this corresponded to the midsection of Sinai, where only Aaron and, and the elders of Israel were to ascend. And then finally, there's the Holy of Holies inside the tent, but on the other side of the thick veil, behind which only the high priest could access, and that but once a year. Obviously, this corresponding to the summit of the mountain where only Moses ascended. And so both Sinai and the tabernacle divided into three zones of approach of increasing holiness. And then continuing the focus on the Holy of Holies, we encounter another parallel between the tabernacle and the mountain. And that is both were locations of divine speech. Again, appealing to the text, consider Exodus 19. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, and then we read in Leviticus 1.1, then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, again, both were locations of divine speech. But more specifically, it is the ark itself that both memorializes and perpetuates or continues God's voice to his people. You see, on the mountain, God spoke with a great voice and inscribed his commands for his people on tablets of stone. Where were these tablets stored? They were stored in the ark, which, of course, is why the ark is referred to as the ark of testimony, because they contain the tablets of Yahweh's commands. However, not only does the ark memorialize God's voice on the mountain by storing the stone tablets, but the ark is also the location at which God's voice continues to reveal Yahweh's commandments. Listen to Exodus 25, verse 22, referring to the ark. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about that. I will, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And so we see that Yahweh's sovereign disclosure of His ways and His law that began on Sinai was not completed on Sinai. God would continue to communicate with His people. In fact, as we've mentioned in a prior message, I mentioned a few moments ago, almost all of Leviticus consists of God's speeches to Moses, Aaron, or both communicated from inside the tent of meeting and almost exclusively from inside the Holy of Holies. Now, let me share one more fascinating parallel. But to do that, I need to draw your attention to God's words spoken to Moses in Exodus 33. By the way, this is in that chapter that we just talked about briefly where Moses was 
interceding or mediating on behalf of the people. This is the scene where Moses is seeking to find atonement on behalf of the people because of the golden calf incident. And in the context of that dialogue between Yahweh and Moses, we read Yahweh declare to Moses in verse 33:20, but he, that is God, said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Now, consider Yahweh's appearance on the mountain in Exodus 19:16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes And what else? A thick cloud upon the mountain. Now we jump to Exodus 24, verse 16. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, He called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. Now properly understood, the cloud that covered God's presence on the mountain was essentially a protective screen Covering God's glory. You see, when God says, no man can see me and live, that's not just poetic filler. What God is saying is, I am unapproachable by sinners. It goes back to this problem. How does a holy God bring into His presence the very people with whom He wants to dwell and live without destroying those very people? God's holiness His righteousness is lethal to the defiled sinner. How is God to make this come about? No man can see me and live, Yahweh tells Moses. And so it's best to think of this cloud as a protective screen that preserves the life of the one coming in to Yahweh's presence. Because one cannot see God and live, the cloud protected Moses and the people from seeing God's appearance directly. Now let me share with you where we find this explicitly explained. Right, Moving from the mountain to the tabernacle now, listen to what we read in Leviticus 16, particularly in verses 12 and 13. Yahweh directs, He says, He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire pen. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of of the testimony. And if he doesn't do this, otherwise he will die. I want to submit to you that God is not just being cranky and saying, do what I say or I'll kill you. There's a very real threat here for the defiled, profaned sinner to cast their eyes upon the vision of God's presence is lethal. Is lethal. God must protect the one approaching from the lethality of His glory. This word cloud that we just read in Leviticus 16 is the Hebrew word anon. And yes, it's the very same word used to describe the cloud on the mountain. And notice that the nature of the cloud as a protective screen is stated directly at the end of this passage. Otherwise, he will die. Just as Moses and the people were protected from the face of God 
through Yahweh's cloud on Sinai, the cloud of incense protected Aaron and the high priest that would follow in Aaron's footsteps, lest they die. They walk into the temple and Yahweh's presence is obscured by the veil, the thick purple veil with the cherubim embroidered thereon. Remember, the cherubim is always a marker of that guarding Yahweh's sacred presence, Yahweh's sacred space. The high priest, once a year, is about to go behind this veil. What will now protect him from the presence of Yahweh? The cloud of incense. In the very same way that the cloud of God's glory on Sinai protected Moses and all others from the very presence of Yahweh. So hopefully by now, the point is clear. The tabernacle and its associated service, it wasn't just a means of remembering Sinai. Rather, it was a means by which the reality of Sinai, Yahweh's presence was re-experienced, continued to be experienced. Another important parallel, or another important collection of parallels that point to the tabernacle as a continuation of the Sinai experience are the parallels between the tabernacle and Eden. And in particular, the parallels between the tabernacle's Holy of Holies and Eden's garden. Now, we've addressed this a bit in our earlier messages, so I'm not going to recover any of that here. Right? But, but recall that Eden and the garden were seen to exist at the summit of God's primeval mountain. And so in reliving the Sinai experience through the tabernacle, Israel is also reminded what Sinai itself was meant to convey. God's habitation atop God's holy mountain. The big idea, the big idea I want you to grasp through all of this is that God's tabernacling presence amidst Israel must be understood as the very revelation of God's heart. That is God's deep, unbending desire to dwell with humanity. What we see through the movement of the Pentateuch storyline is that which is driving all of redemptive history. God's settled purpose for His people to be planted on His Mountain, his holy mountain, so that they may dwell in God's house and rest in his in the presence of his beauty and his glory forever. That's the message of scriptures. That's the central message of the Pentateuch. And that's what we see presented here in concentrated form. Now, as we as we reach the end of Exodus, it seems on one hand that God's purpose has been realized. I mean, after Moses finished erecting the tabernacle and arranging its contents, we come across something quite remarkable. And we read this at the end of Exodus in chapter 40, and I'll begin with verse 34. We read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, for the moment, I'm going to skip over verse 35. We'll come back to that in a few seconds. Jump ahead to verse 36. Throughout all their journey, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. 
But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. For the first time, for the first time since the exile from Yahweh's garden, God dwells amidst humanity. Consider this. The creator of heaven and earth, who once walked among humanity, re-enters human history. In his descent upon the tabernacle, the thunderous majesty of Yahweh has arrived to dwell on earth with his people. Eden has been recovered. Has it? Not quite. Not quite. The story's not finished. In fact, the burden that drives the dramatic tension of the biblical drama bursts into the moment. Because in Moses' closing paragraph, what initially sounds like the settled completion of God's plan is once again plunged into crisis. Let's go back to Exodus 40. And this time I will read verse 35. I'll, I'll begin with 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And what do we read next? And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What is going on? Once again, how does a holy God dwell amidst a defiled and sinful people bent on rebellion without God's holiness and righteousness destroying the very people with whom he desires to dwell? How deep must the gravity of the problem be if the one called out by Yahweh to ascend his holy mountain, the one who was called to mediate God's covenant with his people, is himself barred from entry into Yahweh's dwelling place? Again, the echoes of the gate liturgy are deafening. Who shall ascend the mountain of God, the mountain of Yahweh? It turns out that rather than having arrived at the end of our drama, we have just the opposite. We've, we've arrived at, at only the beginning, just the beginning. How is Israel to survive in the midst of the lethal danger suddenly posed by Yahweh's dwelling presence? Though God has taken up the tabernacle as his earthly habitation with his people, there is yet, there is yet no way open for humanity to approach God's presence safely let alone enjoy fellowship with him. There is no way for humanity to approach God's presence safely, let alone enjoy fellowship with him. Moses' inability to enter the tent is a shocking statement. Since throughout the narrative, Moses alone is able to ascend into God's presence atop the clouded summit of Sinai. If Moses is unable to enter the tabernacle, then nobody, absolutely nobody, is able this is the crisis. This is the crisis that closes the book of Exodus. This is the tension that closes the book of the a book of Exodus. And this crisis is the this crisis is the heart of of the Pentateuch's theology. This remarkable statement 
of the human mediator's inability to enter into the presence of Yahweh's glory serves a very specific dramatic tension. It brings us to the doorstep of Leviticus. It brings us to the doorstep of the Leviticus. Because Leviticus will answer the question, how does a defiled and rebellious people dwell in Yahweh's earthly presence without being destroyed by Yahweh's holiness? Leviticus will reveal not only how entrance into the divine presence is made possible, but how the place of God's dwelling will also be the place of meeting between God and his people. Leviticus will tell us that. Let me close us in prayer. O Lord, impress upon the hearts of your people what you have sovereignly disclosed of your person and actions through these inspired narratives. May we more faithfully understand and be shaped by the gravity of your holiness and the danger of your presence to the sinner that in your mercy necessitates your unapproachability. Father, we desperately need to be rescued from the self-absorbed thinking that cripples your church, particularly in our age and place. Forbid it, Father, that we would relate to your gospel in a way that makes trite your holiness and our hostility. Forbid it that we would see Christianity as merely some adornment to our life, a way to be a better person or a way to have a better life. Forbid it that we would be drawn to your gospel simply as a way to feel better about ourselves or to soothe our guilt or to raise our children. Forbid it, Lord, that we would seek you as our tool rather than our treasure. Oh, Lord, we desperately need you to press truth into our hearts so that we would tremble, so that we would tremble at what it means to say that you are holy and we are sinners. May the truths revealed in today's narrative, along with the truths of Leviticus that we'll encounter in the coming weeks, may these stir within us a deepening reverence and a wonder at the mystery of your divine love and your divine mercy that sought us out amidst our reality as a defilement in your house. Grant us a deepening faithfulness in our stewardship of your gospel that we would repent of placing ourselves at the center of your gospel, our ambitions, our desires, rather than the true center of your gospel, your supreme glory alone. In your name we pray. Amen.